Well, we are uh, into the third week of Advent now, and we've been taking this, this journey uh, together as a congregation, really kind of trying to understand exactly how the people of Israel felt as they were longing and waiting for the answer uh, to, their, to their covenant prayers, which we now know as the advent of Jesus, the, the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, we've tried to really kind of emotionally come to grips with that. So as we move into this now, we kind of now begin to move into a, to a sense of, uh, of more hope, of more expectation, uh, of more anticipation of the soon arrival of God's answer uh, to our prayers. Let me ask you a question uh, to kind of get our, our minds going. What is it for you that, it, that is the telltale sign that spring is around the corner? Now, for most of you who aren't named Jeff Miller, winter is kind of a season you just need to get through, right? And spring is a wonderful thing, and we all long for it. Jeff, you're in your glory right now, and we understand that. Um, but for the rest of us, like this, what is the sign for you that spring is is soon coming. It's still kind of winter, but there's a sign that spring is soon coming. For me, uh, the sign is a bird. And you, I don't need to go into long detail again. You understand my feelings about birds. I don't need to continue to reiterate this. I see them as my enemy, and they see me as their enemy, and we kind of have this understanding. But there's this bird. It's the first thing to arrive in our yard that tells us that spring is coming. And I know this bird. It's either the same exact bird every year or, or somehow the bird, birds that come to our house look like this bird. And it's a robin, and it's the biggest robin that you've ever seen in your whole life. It's like a robin that swallowed a bowling ball, right? It shows, it's just exactly what it looks like, a bowling ball with a beak. And it shows up, and it sits in the middle of our yard, and it and it, it makes its noise, right? It, it chirps, it tweets, and I look out and think, wow, that bird is well cared for. <laughs> and there it is, and it's kind of the beginning of the signs of, oh, spring is coming soon. We've been taking this journey, like I said, and we looked at Isaiah chapter 53, and we understood the, the pain and the brokenness and the struggle of humanity. And the reality of the depth of that pain and that struggle. And the longing from humanity for peace. Not just an absence of conflict, but this bigger Hebrew sense of shalom, wholeness, where everything is as it should be in God's world. And we looked at Isaiah chapter 61, and we understood a people who had come back out of exile. They'd returned to their land, but they looked around and they saw everything, and it didn't look like anything they remembered. It had lost all its luster. It had lost all of its glory. There was nothing there that sort of rejuvenated them in the sense of it. In fact, they were dejected and discouraged. But this morning, as we continue to look into the Old Testament prophets, we begin to see the fat robin land in the backyard, right? the beginning of the signs of spring, that seasons are changing. And we're going to look at the prophet Jeremiah. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 33. Uh, If you don't have a copy, that is fine. Feel free to just listen along. Jeremiah chapter 33. 
verse 1, this is what it says. While Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the guard, uh, Jeremiah is, in essence, in prison, though not like in a jail cell. He's uh, imprisoned by the high priest who didn't like the things he was saying, so he basically locked him up right there in the, uh, in the, in the courtyard. The word of the Lord came to him again, and this is what the Lord said to Jeremiah. So he who made the earth, the Lord who has formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. The Lord said to him, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says about the houses in the city and the royal palaces of Judah that have been torn down to be used against the siege ramps and the sword in the fight with the Babylonians. So the the siege of Jerusalem is still underway at this point in this prophecy. The Babylonians have it surrounded. They've already carried out some some prisoners to Babylon, kind of the the young and the most uh, useful people from Israel to the Babylonian Empire. Jeremiah is still there. The city is kind of being destroyed as he's writing this. The palaces of Judah have been torn down to be used as siege ramps. And the sword and the fight of the Babylonians, they will be filled with dead bodies. And the people I will slay in my anger and wrath. I will hide my face from this city because of its all, all of its wickedness. But here, here we go. It starts to turn. Verse 6. Nevertheless, I will bring health and healing to it. I will heal my people and will let them enjoy abundant peace and security. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and I will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Then this city will bring me renown, will bring me joy, will bring me praise. It will honor me before all the nations on the earth that hear of all the good things that I do for it. You get this Abrahamic covenant sense that the nations hear about God's blessing to his people and they want that. And they come. And they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. This is what the Lord says. You say about this place, it is desolate waste without people or animals. Yet in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, Inhabited by neither people nor animals, there will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness. The voices of brides and bridegrooms. The voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says, In this place desolate and without people or animals, in all its towns there will again be pastures for shepherds to rest their flocks. In the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills of the Negev, in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, flocks will again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just, and he will do what is right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called. 
the Lord, our righteous Savior. Fascinating that the season, the the reality of exile begins to turn to this, this picture of what it will begin to look like of stability and of healing and of restoration. And the signs that Jeremiah gives that kind of the healing of the land is underway, the renewal of God's land and God's people is underway, the restoration of God's intention is underway. There's three things he lists there that the people should take notice of and realize that something is happening. The first thing he says is that there will be brides and there will be bridegrooms. In essence, there will be weddings in the land. Now, is this important because of the actual reality of marriage? Well, perhaps. But a lot of what he's getting at here is this reality of celebratory occasions. Banquets and joy and laughter and celebration will be in the land. You do not do this kind of thing when the Babylonians are slaying siege to the city, right? You do not have big, raucous celebrations in the town when armies are marching against you. There's this stability that exists there that in the land and in the people that is exhibited by joy and celebration. And the second thing he says is there will be thanksgiving and thank offerings made to God. Did you catch that? Again, there's not many thankful prayers being lifted up when the Babylonians are laying siege and carrying your, your nephews and your nieces and your cousins and your brothers and your dad off to captivity. But Jeremiah prophesies about this time, this beginnings, this, this arrival of spring, this giant robin that sits in the backyard when thanksgiving will again begin to fill the streets. Can I just pause and say something for a minute? Did you know that gratitude is one of the chief realities of gospel presence in our lives? That gratitude in our lives is one of the chief ways that the scriptures tells us that, that, the, that the gospel has come to rest deeply on us. That we are people who are defined by our thankfulness for what God has done for us and how he has blessed us rather than our grumbling for what we perceive he has not done for us or has withheld from us. Jeremiah, through his prophecy, There'll be times of joy and celebration, and the the streets will be filled with thanksgiving. And then there's this weird third thing that shows stability, and it's that there will be shepherds watching their flocks. In the same way, there are no shepherds watching their flocks in and around small towns or villages, certainly in and around Jerusalem, as Jeremiah says, when the Babylonians are laying siege to it. And there are no shepherds watching their flocks when all the people have been taken captive to Babylon. And there are no shepherds watching their flocks when the nation has been invaded by foreign armies. The shepherds are either in hiding or they've taken up arms. There's this sense of stability that's in the land. There's this sense of structure. There's this sense of hope that's there that is personified by shepherds watching their flocks by night. And you know where I'm going, right? In Luke chapter 2, how does the announcement of the Messiah come? To shepherds watching their flocks by night. 
See, see, the prophecy that Jeremiah is saying here is the sense in which the people are meant to understand that, yes, they need this righteous remnant that we've been talking about. Yes, they need this Messiah that's coming, but that God's restoration and renewal of the world is already underway. And if you would look around, you would begin to see it in joyous celebrations, in streets filled with thanksgiving, and even in shepherds numbering their flocks by counting their noses, Jeremiah says. Fascinating. And then there's this wonderful verse. It says, In those days and at that time, there will be a branch that emerges from the tree. A branch from the line of David. And this tree imagery and illustration is common throughout the prophets and throughout the Old Testament. It's representative of the people of God, right? But you get the picture, right? For something to grow out of something, it's not just sort of like your tree that's constantly growing. There's this this picture that the tree has been cut, cut off and that miraculously a new branch is growing up out of it. And, of course, this branch points to this idea of the righteous remnant that we've been talking about, the Messiah that the people are longing for. But what's fascinating to me is that before we get to that, God says there will be weddings in the land, and there will be thanksgiving in the land, and there will be shepherds watching their flocks by night. That there will be the beginnings of renewal. That when the Messiah comes, when the righteous branch comes out of the tree of Israel, it will come to multiply that which God has already started. And so, in Luke chapter 2, when the angel shows up to the shepherds who are watching their flocks by night, no doubt counting their sheep to make sure that everyone is there and none have been gone off. The angel appears. And Luke records this not because it's fascinating that shepherds are included, though that is very fascinating. Not simply because shepherds are kind of ritually unclean people in society, untrustworthy people in society, and really at the lowest rung of the social ladder, as it were, and that Jesus is welcoming them in. That's true. But at the core of what's going on in this story is Luke, in telling the gospel story of Jesus, is pointing to Jeremiah 33 and saying, don't you see? It's into the beginnings of this renewal that's already happening that Jesus, the righteous branch, has come. He is an exponential culmination of the renewal that God is bringing to the world. And so the shepherds go. And the people gather. This is why the realities of the day, the Thanksgiving and the weddings, of course we see Jesus' first miracle in John. Is that that a wedding? There's there's Thanksgiving, there's weddings. All these things are true in the society of the day. It's why the messianic hope was at its height when Jesus arrived. People were so desperate for the Messiah because they were seeing the truth of the beginnings of the renewal that God had 
promised. And then Jesus is born and enters fully into humanity, we said, so that he can offer it renewal. And then it's at the cross where Jesus fully enters into our pain and our brokenness and our suffering so that he can offer us wholeness and peace. See, Jesus enters into God's already beginnings of renewal and he exponentially fulfills it and brings it to its fullness. And it's at the resurrection of Jesus where renewal and peace are offered to all who would come. But I think it's fascinating, friends, that we live in a time that feels an awful lot like Jeremiah chapter 33. Because of the advent of Jesus, because of his birth into humanity, because of his death Uh, on the cross, and because ultimately of his resurrections, we taste the beginnings of newness, don't we? We have reasons to celebrate, and we have reasons to be thankful, and we have reasons to occupy the land, as it were. Uh, Land in the Old Testament translates pretty nicely to life in the New Testament. Whereas in the Old Testament, the Messiah would give the people back their land. In the New Testament, Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life to the fullest. And if you know some of the illusions, you know that those things go right together. There's this sense that because then this sense, there's this reality that because Jesus has come and has brought fulfillment and has brought access to peace and wholeness and renewal and restoration, we taste the beginnings of it. It's what theologians call the already but not yet kingdom of God. Have you heard this before, right? That we we have the reality of the kingdom of God through Jesus now, but not yet in its fullness. And so we, like the people, we taste it. The fat robin has landed in the backyard. We know that it's here, and yet we long for Jesus to come back again a second time to bring it all to its fullness, to set the world to rights. We see the beginnings of the good things that are happening in our life and in the world, and yet we see all of the ways that our world is broken and that we are broken, and we long for Jesus to make it right. So what is the point of Jeremiah's prophecy then? Is it simply to say that? I think not. There's two things that Jeremiah is driving at here that are great takeaways for us in this world and at this time, at this time and in this place, right? The first is to take hope. We are called to take hope and to take it by faith. And here's what I think is important for us to remember, that faith is not a mental exercise, Faith is an active exercise. Faith moves, faith walks, faith speaks. It doesn't think, right? Now, the renewing of your mind is radically important in this process. 
But faith is something we do. It is not necessarily something we, we conjure up in ourselves. And so Jeremiah, when he's telling us to take a step of faith and, and to take hope, he's asking us to move, right? To act, to respond. And he doesn't just ask us to do it. He actually does it and demonstrates it for us. In the chapter before, chapter 33, you'll have to read this another time. Jeremiah is still in prison, right? The high priest is not happy with the things Jeremiah is saying because he's saying, like, Israel and Judah is bad. Destruction is coming. The temple has not done what it needs to do. All of these things. The high priest is not happy. He's imprisoned. And God says to Jeremiah, I want you to buy land. Right? Now, this is a terrible decision, Right? And in no, under no circumstances and in no way should anyone at that particular time have invested in Palestinian real estate, right? The Babylonians are there. They're clearly taking over everything. God has clearly said to this man, yes, they will take over everything, and you're going into a long exile. But he says to him, I, I want you to buy land. He says, you're... Your relatives live in this place over here, and you're the rightful, you're, you have the rightful access to buy this piece of land. I want you to go to your relative, and I want you to tell him that you want to buy the land. And so Jeremiah goes, and he buys this land. Now, this is not recorded for us to show us you know, the, the benefits of real estate investment. Right? This is recorded for us because Jeremiah, though he is saying that exile is a very real thing, the world is incredibly broken, he's saying, I am so confident of God's promise of renewal of all things that I'm investing in this place, even though it's incredibly broken. You see it? And if you go one chapter back into chapter 31, you begin to know why Jeremiah had the confidence to follow through on this command of God. Because it's in Jeremiah 31 where Jeremiah very famously is spoken to by God when God says, I am going to give to my people a new covenant. Whereas the old covenant between God and man was written on tablets of stone, things that needed to be followed externally, this new covenant is going to be written on the hearts of my people and my spirit will enable them to live into it. And this covenant will be everlasting. Friends, we, unlike Jeremiah, have seen the full reality of the execution of this new covenant. Jesus said at the Last Supper, this cup represents my blood which is a new covenant, right? Poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. It's Jesus. It's the righteous root that rises from the stump that was Israel that brings an exponential culmination to this restoration project and and brings into fullness this new and everlasting covenant with God's people. And so Jeremiah says, take hope. And I think he would say to us this morning, you ought to buy some real estate here. Now, I just told you that the Old Testament concept of land pretty, pretty well matches up to the New Testament concept of life. 
So I'm not thinking that Jeremiah wants us to see what's available in Palestine for purchase. But I do think he wants us to look around and see and taste the beginnings of renewal. To see the celebratory realities and the joyous things that Christ has brought into our life. And all the reasons to be thankful. And to know then that the advent of Christ, the return of Christ is soon and will be its final and most exponential fulfillment and culmination. And so we symbolically buy land in our life. By living as people of hope in the midst of a broken world. And this is an act of faith. To live and be characterized by who and what Jesus has done. To honestly take hope. And if you go back two more chapters to Jeremiah 29, you begin to see that this is even just a little more than having belief and therefore living Uh, in a certain spirit of ways. It actually has external ramifications on our lives. Because in Jeremiah chapter 29, though people have already gone off into captivity, Jeremiah sends them a letter of prophecy from God. And many of us are familiar with a famous verse in Jeremiah chapter 29 that says that God knows the plans he has for us, right? Plans for for our future and for hope and for prosperity in these things. And many of us love that verse, and rightfully so, but many of us don't read all of the context that is happening in that passage. Where Jeremiah says to the people, hunker down, you're going to be in Babylon for a little while. So go ahead and buy a house. And go ahead and get married and have kids. Don't just wait for the return to its fullness, but live where you are now. And then he says something even more radical. He says, and seek the welfare of the city where you are. Now, it was one thing that Jeremiah was told to buy land in Palestine because someday this whole thing would be over. But now Jeremiah is saying to the people, Buy some land in Babylon and live there for its benefit. In essence, he's saying, you aren't just called to be people of hope when everything comes together for you in the end, but you're called to be people of hope even in exile. That how you live, as Jeremiah prophesies, according to the blessings of God in your life, even if in prison in Palestine or captivity in Babylon, declares a certain hope that you have that speaks to all the world. See, I think Jeremiah's message to us is not just take hope, it's also be hope for the world. What would it mean for you to seek the welfare of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania? Or Emmaus, or Nazareth, or Whitehall, or Hellertown, 
uh, or Phillipsburg or wherever you call home. What does it mean for us to seek the welfare of this world? To live as people of hope in the midst of brokenness. If we have received hope, then we are called to be ambassadors of hope around us. Jeremiah says, don't just hold out and wait for your return to Israel, but live as people of hope where you are now. And for far too long, those of us in the church have been hunkering down and waiting for some escape in the future. And not being people of hope in the places that God has planted us. In the same way that weddings and thanksgiving and even shepherds counting their flocks signaled to the people of Israel that the renewal that God is working in the world is underway. And you can take a breath and believe that God is up to something and that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to bring an exponential culmination to this restoration project. In the same way, can I suggest to you that the church, the people of God, are called to be those things in this world so that an onlooking world can look at the church and can say, the Almighty is beginning to renew all things. It is still broken, but there are seeds of hope. A large robin has landed in the backyard of Bethlehem, right? And a a, a massively obese robin has landed in the backyard of Hellertown. It's shown up in Emmaus, right? There's the signs of spring. Yes, the headlines are telling a story that says panic and desperation, and the world is broken. There's sickness, and there's pain, and there's hurt, but there's this sense that spring is coming. There's there's this feeling that hope is afoot, and how do we see it? We see it in the church, because that's the place where the people are feeling joy and offering thanksgiving and being tangible symbols of the presence of God in a broken world. God says, though you are in exile, there is hope. And if there is hope, then you must seek the welfare of the city where you live in exile. For far too long, the church has been on an escapist plan. And yet God has been calling us to, as the great missiologist Leslie Newbegin once said, be a sign, a symbol, and a foretaste of the soon coming kingdom of God. To be people of hope. And we do it through proclamation and through portrayal. Much is made of proclamation and telling about the coming realities of Christ. And yet, long before the proclamation was made to the shepherds, there was already weddings and thanksgiving and shepherds watching their flocks. There was a divine drama unfolding that was telling of hope that when the words came, they made sense with the scene that was being set. Have you ever been to a lavish Broadway play 
and decided to simply close your eyes and listen to the script. And yet, the church in many ways has decided that this is the way we will tell the world about the hope. Or imagine going to a lavish Broadway play and plugging your ears and hearing nothing of what's being said and just taking it all in. Through script or through drama, we catch pieces of it. But when script meets drama, we see it and we hear it and we believe it. This is what the church is supposed to be. The proclamation and the portrayal of the hope that Christ brings us as the final exponential culmination of the renewal project of God. If he is changing your life, if there is hope, if there is celebration, if there is things to be thankful for, then a grand result of this is also that the nations would know and would praise God too. And so if the Messiah comes, as Jeremiah says, to be someone who will come and to bring justice and righteousness, then the church better do the same thing. To be people who are known in our proclamation and our portrayal through justice and righteousness. A gospel that saves us from our sin and a gospel that is renewing this world for the glory of God. This third week of Advent, does it feel like the seasons are beginning to change? Can you at least picture that oversized Robin as he or she descends to the middle of the backyard? Is there reason to be joyous? Can you find the things for which to be thankful for? Is there some sense of stability even in this crazy, broken, messed up world? If so, then your heart must long for the soon return of Jesus who will finally right all wrongs, who will finally renew all things, and who will finally make good on the restoration, the healing, and the hope that we have. And if you take that hope, then can I challenge you this Advent season to also be that hope. Pray with you.